in terms of the liturgical calendar, Thomas the Apostle has just terrible timing. In the Western Church, his feast day was used to be on December the 21st. And then everybody realized that Thomas would get overshadowed, rightly overshadowed, by Advent and the Christmas preparations. So the Western Church moved his feast day to match what it is in the Eastern Church and in South India, which has a great devotion to Thomas the Apostle and where there's a tradition that Thomas died on July the 3rd. So the Western Church and the Episcopal Church moved it to July the 3rd which is not exactly the best day and evening for devotions for American Episcopalians. (laughs) And then the best story of all about Thomas occurs on the second Sunday after Easter, low Sunday, when there tends to be less people in church. I got an email yesterday from a bishop friend of mine who we were corresponding about something, and he said, I hope your low Sunday tomorrow is relatively high. And thankfully it is. But it falls on a Sunday in which many people, a lot of people miss. But for those of us who are here, for those of us who know Thomas's story... And reflect upon it, we are richly rewarded. Thomas in John's gospel is an evocative character, matching, I believe, Mary Magdalene in depth and texture and interest. I was talking with someone a few weeks ago who is a college student and a very smart young Episcopalian. And the conversation got deep, and I asked him about, tell me about your faith. And he said, his name's Thomas, he said, I always have related most to doubting Thomas. I'm someone whose mind has to understand before I can trust it, before I can believe. Thomas is sometimes called the patron saint of Anglicanism, the Episcopal Church... I did not mean that to be funny, so I'm glad you (laughs) found some humor in that. Anglicanism in the Episcopal Church has this bold, even courageous search for truth. Come whence it may, cost what it will. One great um, symbol of that has occurred recently. I don't know if you saw that Stephen Hawkins died, God rest his soul, that great cosmologist who made remarkable discoveries about the nature of black holes and that black holes that were assumed to be bottomless actually leak. He was at best an agnostic, but it's just been announced that he is going to be buried properly at Westminster Abbey, the great Anglican Abbey, and his ashes will be interred just a few feet away from Isaac Newton and not that far away from Charles Darwin. There's this rich appreciation in Anglicanism in the Episcopal Church that that science is one of the many paths that leads to truth, and all forms of truth, all forms of truth come from God and the very being of God. There's a great number of Episcopal parishes. Some of you, I'm sure, used to belong to one named after St. Thomas, 
in the Diocese of Alabama, where I hail from, in Huntsville, Alabama, a great town associated with NASA. And it's always had these scientists and engineers just everywhere. And in the 1950s, when they planted a new Episcopal church in the suburbs that was filled with all these engineers and scientists, they chose St. Thomas, unsurprisingly, as their patron saint. In John's Gospel, every time Thomas shows up, it's really interesting and evocative. He's a kind of icon for doubtful faith or faithful doubt. The first time he shows up beyond just being listed among the 12 apostles is when Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are grieving. Jesus is not there, so they send an entourage to go and get Jesus, and they tell him that Lazarus has died. It's that scene in which Jesus weeps, the shortest verse in the Bible. At this moment in John's Gospel, Jesus and the Pharisees have not been getting along. The writing is on the wall. We see where this is headed. And Jesus says he's going to go back to the tomb of Lazarus. And in that moment... And in all that conflict and the coming tragedy, Thomas is the one who says, let us also go, for we will die with him. It's a kind of courageous, disbelieving faith. He doesn't believe in resurrection. He believes that it will turn out as a tragedy, but he himself is still willing to go there. A few chapters later and after the foot washing, it's Thomas who, in response to Jesus saying, you know the way, you know how to do this, you know where I'm going. It's Thomas and Thomas alone who says something so many of us have said over the course of our lives. We do not know the way. How could we know how to do this? It's a question of total honesty, even exasperation. And then finally, here we are near the end of John's gospel. The risen Christ has mysteriously appeared to Mary Magdalene, appeared to some of the apostles. And the story is out, thanks to Mary Magdalene, that Christ is risen, whatever that means. And it's Thomas, and Thomas alone, who says, I I will not believe it unless I see it. I will not believe it unless I see the mark of the nails in his side and in his hands and in his feet. A few days after that, Jesus mysteriously appears again. And knowing Thomas's state of mind, he invites Thomas to see and to touch. And Thomas does not. Just seeing is enough. And it leads to that incredible confession, my Lord and my God. And it leads even more importantly to what is the key to John's entire gospel when Jesus says this, blessed are those, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The visions of the risen Christ end. The appearances end. And we're not given proof. We're not given literalism. And the blessing of all of us, and even those among us who are more doubters than believers, are doubtfully believing, the blessing for us is that we actually don't have to have proof. 
John's gospel and the risen Christ relates to us even when we can't prove it, even when we can't see it, but still we trust. And it's that existential trust that might actually be the deepest form of faith that there is. One other saying from John's gospel that illuminates this. I don't call you servants any longer, but I call you friends, Jesus says. Think just for a moment, and I realize we've got babies in baptism, but just for a moment about friendship. The two key ingredients in friendship are love and time. Friendship takes time. Remain in me as branches remain in a vine. And what John contributes to the spiritual life for all of us is that it takes a long time to know the risen Christ. It takes all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our fears, the whole course of our human life for us finally to know the risen Christ and ultimately believe. The risen Christ is really patient with all of us, even when we're asking those questions that we assume have no answers. It looks like it's time to wrap this homily up a little bit. (laughs) The head of the altar guild told me a story two days ago about a dean in the 1950s who was much beloved here, Dean Roberts. He had a really witty wife. And once she said to him after the sermon in earshot of everybody, she said, you had three stopping places for that sermon. And you missed all of them. (laughs) And ultimately, the interpretation of baptism is not in words, but in deeds. And is in about what we are about to do in baptizing these nine babies who will take their place alongside Thomas and Mary Magdalene and all of us. Let the people say, Amen. Amen.